I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Today on the show, we welcome John Gilman. He writes the newsletter called View from the Cellar. He's a wine critic and longtime wine drinker that brings a lot of experience to the table. Mr. John Gilman on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well, Levy. Thank you for having me. So these days you uh, you apply a trade as a wine critic uh, and you write the View from the Cellar newsletter, but uh, originally started uh, in retail in the Massachusetts area. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, when I was going to college, I was fortunate to fall into a group of uh, good wine tasters. And so worked in wine shops in college and got a job working as a buyer for the biggest store in New England when I was just graduated from college. And from that point on, you know, just sort of worked in retail about 15 years and migrated down to Manhattan looking for to source better wines and, you know, to really be in the epicenter of the wine world as I saw it at that time. Because you felt like some things weren't available in mass. Oh yeah, that was totally true. I mean, you know, for, we'd scramble to get things that were readily available in New York, and you'd get, you know, three or four bottles would be your allocation if you bought a hundred other cases of things. So it was nice to be able to buy anything you wanted, and you know, the, the best importers were in New York. I thought at that time. And this was the eighties. Yeah, this was the eighties. You know, I graduated graduated from school in the early eighties and lived a year out in California, and then migrated down here and throughout the eighties and early nineties. Worked as a retailer before moving on to my sommelier career. And what were you often serving or selling in the retail days? I mean, what was the normal wine buyer looking for at that time? Uh, I mean, California and Bordeaux were really the kings of the market in those days. You know, it was interesting. I mean, Burgundy was my passion, really developed with the 85 Vintage, which was the first vintage I was responsible for buying as a wine buyer. Lucky and, 85, huh? Uh, not not a great. bad one to start with. It was nice. Well, you had to start with 84 in those days, you know, because right. they were still kicking around. So if you wanted 85s, you had to step up to the plate and help out the importer a little with some 84s. Sounds like the wine business I know. Yeah. It's funny. The first Truchot Marton wine I ever had was a, a 1984. How was that, though? Oh, it was fabulous. Yeah. I couldn't believe how good it was. And I was so green. It was a Charme Chambertin. I called up the importer and I said, Peter? This doesn't say Jeffrey Chambertin on it. I think there's something wrong with the wine. He had to explain to me Grand Cruz didn't have to have the name of the village on him. So I was pretty green in those days. Wow, amazing. 
But uh, so what did you learn in retail business? I mean, what did you take from that experience in, in broad strokes? You know, for me, I think it's probably the greatest learning ground in, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, being able to really sort of master all of the regions of wine and or at least to become familiar with them. Mastering is not a proper term because, you know, I don't think we ever master anything in the world of wine. It changes every vintage when you feel you got a handle on it. But you have such a broad base that way. You know, you have to taste everything. You have to carry everything. You know, you can't have somebody come in and say they want, you know, the hot new Chenin Blanc from South Africa. And you say, I'm sorry, we have Domaine Huet, and that's all we care about in Chenin Blanc. You know, you have to be open-minded. And that's, I think, fabulous. Because it gives you broad tasting experience also. Oh, God, yeah. Absolutely. Not always good. Sometimes the broad tasting experience can be bad. But, you know, at least you're tasting everything. So you really feel like you're on top of, you know, what's going on with the new vintage everywhere in the world when you're a retailer. And you did end up moving to New York and working in retail in New York for several years. How was, was what was the difference like um, outside of being able to find things in New York? Were there other things that stood out as a little bit different? Well, it was just such a dynamic wine market. You know, in Massachusetts, you had you know a small coterie of collectors. You know, usually doctors or lawyers were primarily your collectors in the New England area. That was my experience anyway. You know, you moved down to New York and there was a real wine culture that didn't exist in Massachusetts, at least at where I knew it in the western part of the state. You know, it were a small niche society, a little tight-knit group. Everybody knew everybody. Because you were working in Amherst. Right. Not mm-hmm. in Boston. Exactly. And so the the kind of depth of sellers and the amount of people who are really seriously interested in wine was maybe a little less. Yeah, I would I would say there's just less of a wine culture. You know, there's a real wine culture in New York. It's very special. You know, I could feel it the moment I arrived here. You know, I just fell in love with it. You know, spent a decade. I wouldn't leave the island of Manhattan if I could help it. You know, because I just felt like this is where I wanted to be in terms of the wine world. But mostly the trade was based around Bordeaux at that time, even though you were kind of a burgundy guy. Bordeaux was more important then because it was less expensive. You know, it's it was really because it's such a large area of fine wine. You know, there's enough wine that everybody can get some. And when they weren't expensive and weren't priced out of the reach of everybody, you know, it was a there was an opportunity to really learn wine through Bordeaux. And I think most of the people of my generation did that. You know, it was great. You know, when I started, I can remember vividly one of the first big collectors buying, you know, 1982 Bordeaux or 1985 Bordeaux from me. And he's going, the beauty of wine is that you can go there and you can buy Chateau Latour or Chateau Petrus. He says, I'm just a college professor. It's expensive for me, but it's affordable. I can't go out and buy the greatest car or the greatest piano or the greatest work of art. He says, but I can buy a bottle of the greatest wine made in Pomerol in 1985. It's possible. Yeah, and that was something Bordeaux had special, and I think they've sort of lost sight of that a little bit as they become, you know, a luxury commodity. Because you can do that with cheese today, and maybe with tea, but you can't That's really right. do it with wine anymore. No, sadly not with wine anymore. And probably one of the reasons I gravitated towards Burgundy, because, you know, as Bordeaux became, you know, more exclusive outside of a few producers in those days, people like, you know, Madame Loire or Domaine de la Romani Conti, you know, most of the great Burgundies were accessible, you know, if you knew where to find them. Because they were made in less quantities, but less people were chasing them. Yeah, and I think also because Burgundians are essentially farmers for Mm -hmm. the most part. And I think they have a real sense that if they price the wines at a certain level, they're going to be, you know, it's unacceptable to them because it sort of betrays the tradition of their fathers and their grandfathers and their neighbors and their neighbors' fathers and grandfathers that remember very well when it was a struggle to sell wine. You know, in the 20s and 30s, there was nobody looking to buy Burgundy, and, you know, vintages would sit around in cask because they didn't even have enough money to buy bottles, to bottle up an entire vintage. So stuff would sit in cask for four or five years. And I think they have a long, you know, a long memory of those days. And so they're a little more cognizant of uh, being cautious with pricing. 
even today, I feel like the difference between seller door and what something might be sold for from a marquee name and the importer taking a little bit more of a markup can be pretty substantial. And so sometimes, you know, they may not be charging that much for it in Europe, but by the time it gets here, it's a little more expensive, even the, the height of Burgundy fandom. Yeah, no, I would say that's definitely true. I mean, it we get a skewed perspective in the U.S. just because we've got our three-tier system and it's built in to really take advantage of the scarcity of wines like Burgundy. And so we pay much higher prices for Burgundy here than Europeans customarily ever would have considered. You know, maybe that's changing the last four or five years, starting with the 2005 vintage in Burgundy. You know, pricing became much more of a luxury goods mentality for a lot of the wines. And you, you see that particularly in the London market, where wines used to be priced. You know, If you were trying to find something hard to get in the U.S., it would invariably be very expensive, something like, you know, an Henri Jaillet wine or a Cauchery Corton Charlemagne or something like that. But you'd go look in London and the prices would be more reasonable. You know, and I don't see that today. London's sort of the epicenter of the gouging of the prices in Burgundy. Maybe I shouldn't say that, having a lot of friends in the UK wine trade, but the prices are pretty stiff they up They probably are now. not going to listen to the podcast, frankly, so <laughs> you're safe. That's safe. <laughs> but uh, at some point you did make a migration from retail to work as a sommelier. How did that come about and what did you see as the difference? Uh, well, I spent 15 years in retail and just felt that, you know, I wanted to do something different, you know, and so being a sommelier was very intriguing at that time. You know, I didn't have any experience with it, but I thought it was an opportunity because I thought, you know, again, going back to the point I made that, you know, I really think retail is the place where you could really learn tremendously in terms of breadth of experience tasting wines. And so I thought, you know, there was an opportunity in the world of sommeliers to take that experience and sort of translate it and get sort of a more well-rounded wine list, you know, the places I was going to run the wine program. And so just by happenstance, you know, my timing was right. And so I got to interview at Gotham Bar and Grill and met Alfred Portali, you know, and I'd never eaten his food before. And I fell in love with his food and more important, the person. I mean, he was a great guy. What was he like to work with? Uh, it was a sweetheart, you know, the most, the least temperamental great chef I've ever known outside of perhaps Scott Bryan of Veritas fame. You know, he was really even keel and, you know, was really warm and caring to everybody that worked at the restaurant, you know, and you see it today. I mean, I was just in for dinner there with Terry Layton from Kalen Sellers a few months ago, and I saw some of the runners and some of the bartenders I worked with, and I worked there, what, eight, 17, 18 years ago, and those people are still there. That's something you don't see in most restaurants in the U.S. these days. That's the kind of thing you would expect to see in France on a two- or three-star Michelin restaurant, but you don't see it in the U.S., you know, where turnover is endemic most places. And what was going on at Gotham at that time? I mean, what was the floor like, and what was on the wine list? Uh, well, when I arrived, I had replaced an excellent sommelier named Joe Nace, whose passion was American wines. So I arrived, and I said, wow, I've got a little opportunity to expand the, the French, the Italian, the Australian, the German the Loire Valley, you know, Italian wines, everything. So Europe was, was a little bit more your your forte. Yeah, it was my specialty, though California is really what I cut my teeth on. I mean, mm -hmm. the first great wines I ever drank were things like 1968 and 70 BV Reserve or mm -hmm. 1974 Heights Martha's Vineyard. Those were the wines that were sort of my reference point, California wines. And so it was sort of a juxtaposition between those and, you know, great old Bordeaux, like 66s or 70s. Bordeaux vintages, you know, those were the things that were sort of the mature wines I was drinking when I was first starting in the wine trade. And so it was, you know, it was a really nice contrast to sort of arrive at a wine list. You know, Joe had done a great job. The American wine list was just extraordinary. I really had to learn about some of the producers, some of the guys he had in Oregon I had never tasted before. So that was really nice. But there was, you know, 
to my palate, I would have liked to see a little bit more European wine. So we dutifully set about uh, expanding the cellar with more Bordeaux and more Burgundy, a lot more Burgundy. And was Scott Carney involved at that time, or was that post? That was after Scott had been the GM there. He had just left to start his own project, but he had been the wine buyer previously before Joe had arrived. So there was a lot of good stuff that he had bought and that had not found its way onto the wine list. So I inherited, you know, a glorious selection of Austrian and German wines with bottle age, which was, you know, such a treat being a Somalian and having wines that were 8, 10, 12 years old that you could just slap on the list and which had been bought when the dollar was strong too. Was there any resistance in terms of customers appreciating those wines at that time? Because that seems a little early in the German appreciation for Americans. Yeah, I would say so. You know, it was... The big thing was we got the sales staff involved. They were just terrified of German wines. They didn't know how to pronounce the names. They had no idea the difference between a cabinet or Spätlese or an Auschlese. And so we did a couple of tastings. You know, I pulled out 10, 12 bottles for each tasting. And so, you know, we'd have a lovely Saturday afternoon, you know, three, four o'clock in the afternoon, everybody would come in and we'd open the wines and I'd explain the wines. And once they tasted them, they went, oh my God, these wines are good. These are fabulous. I could sell these wines. And the first thing they said was, you have to raise the prices or we're going to get in trouble. And I'm like, why? And they said, oh, we get graded on our check average. You know, we can't be selling spate laser for $27 a bottle. So I dutifully raised the price of a couple of them and left a few others on the list at the proper prices. But uh, they loved the wines and we started to sell them easily. And then, of course, I came up with a ploy for weekends, which was I would pretend we had no more White Zinfandel. Really? Because White Zinfandel was still big in those days and they late 80s, sure. early 90s. everywhere, not just, the, you know, every restaurant. That yeah, so people thing. always wanted that. So we'd show up with a bottle of Spätlays and say, we're sorry, we're out of White Zinfandel. But, but you can have this wine, taste it. If you don't like it, you don't have to pay for it, but you can keep the wine and drink it. This wine's a little sweet too and that yeah, kind I of think, thing. Yeah, I think Spätlays is perfect for, you know, the White Zinfandel palate. You know, a little residual sweetness, but with some acidity to balance it and complexity. And people go, my God, this wine is complex. This is wonderful. You know, we had never had anybody send a bottle back. You know, it was a lot of fun. What did you find really worked with Alfred's food at that time? What was a good pairing? For I mean, he's he cooked to Burgundy. You know, mm-hmm. I I love some of his preparations with aged Barolo. They're fantastic. But I mean, when you're a sommelier, Burgundy is really the thing. Or, you know, California Chardonnay, American Pinot Noirs. But those are the wines because invariably you've got, you know, well, you know this, you've been a sommelier too. You've got six people at the table having six different things. You know, and it's tough to pair, you know, You'd, you know, you'd love to serve a Beaucastel to the person that's having the, the crusted lamb dish, you know, with the black olive preparation. It would be perfect, but it's not going to work with the person that decided they wanted to have salmon in the main course. So you settle on burgundy and it covers, so, you know, it's so food friendly. And so that was, you know, perfect for Alfred's food. And you went on to work at Pichelin for a bit. Yeah, I did a short stage at Pichelin, which was sort of the opposite. You know, there, you, you won't find anybody at Pichelin, I don't think, though I haven't been back recently, that was been around 16 or 17 years without leaving. So, you know, it was a little opposite, more of a typical restaurant culture, as a lot of us know it, you know, more of the tumultuous side of the business. And so I think it lasted about six weeks there. But the, the during that experience, you must have seen a little bit of a different... Um workflow just in terms of how people came in because that's in the near Lincoln Center but a lot of pre-theater yeah the pre-theater style of dining I thought was just wonderful for the restaurant you know with most restaurants or at least this was my experience when you first started out everybody was a little sleepy the service was not really at the professional level it would be two or three hours later in the evening you know but when you're doing pre-theater you've got to be you know right on your toes from the moment the doors open because people are in a hurry they want to have a fine dining experience but it's, it's got to be precise and so it was really freeing in that respect at Pichelin because we would do half of our covers every night you know before seven thirty. 
So the rest of the night, you just relaxed. Everything could be precise. You know, you could offer great service. You know, it was it was superb. I, so I love that transition. And it was really nice to be able to work in that type of environment where you were fast-paced right out of the blocks. It got everybody tight. The team was re- really humming on all cylinders. And then afterwards, you could relax. And the rest of the evening was just, you know, fine dining at, you know, the highest level you could deliver. So that was fun. Because people weren't making those kind of early, I'm not really paying attention mistakes because everyone had to be paying attention. Exactly. Yeah, you had to be sharp. You you could be in the weeds by 545 if you opened the doors at 530 if you weren't ready. Was the cheese program uh, kind of booming at that time? It or? was fabulous. Yeah, it's funny you ask because I just did a California tasting for the Wine and Food Society here in New York with oh, Max, oh. which was great. So it was kind of a reunion for us. We hadn't seen each other in maybe a decade. Because so he really kind of fun. pioneered cheese in restaurants at that time, having a really great cheese cart. Oh, God, yeah. It was super. And that was great for me being in Somalia because you could always sell an extra bottle of wine. Yeah. You could always plan the progression of the wines for the table better, knowing they were going to do a cheese course. You know, so maybe you could finish with something older and a little more delicate, you know, an old bottle of Obreon or something like that, which would be perfect with the cheese, but wouldn't have worked earlier with everything at the table, you know, where people are having the different lobster courses. Lobster salad, that kind exactly. of Exactly. But it didn't work out for the long term. And, and so how, what was your next move? Uh, it was funny. Just after I left Pichelin, I was contacted by a friend who uh, said, you know, I've got a friend in Geneva, Switzerland, who's starting a rare wine brokering company. You know, would you be interested? They want somebody to work in the U.S. for them. And I went, well, sure, I'm kind of like being a sommelier, but I'd be curious, you know, sure, I'd be happy to talk to him. So I get a phone call from this friend of a friend, and he says, you know, we'd like to interview. And I said, okay, that's fine. He says, so we'll fly you over to Geneva, you know, and whether we decide to work together or not, we'll take you to Burgundy for a week as a thank you for coming over. And I went, hmm, this sounds okay. So I happily got on the plane. Yeah. You know, before I uh, got on the plane, they asked me, would you be willing to put just a little, you know, Pro, a projected program together what you might be able to do for us. We'd like you to run the eastern half of the U.S. That's what we're interviewing to have somebody do. And I said, sure. So I put a little program together, you know, just hoping what I could do. You know, it was probably more aspiration than anything else. And I walk into the interview. The interview was, you know, set for 6 o'clock at night at one of the partner's homes. So I walk in and they hand me a glass of 79 Krug Clos Unbelievable. And they said, we're so happy you'll be working with us. He says, we'll figure out whatever the money has to be, it'll be. That'll be fine. I thought, wow. I've not had a job interview like this before. They so, must have liked that proposal, huh? So it was great. So we sat down and we drank great wine all night, finished with 45 Ecam. And, uh, you know, I worked for them for three and a half years and had a great time. What, what does it mean to be a fine wine broker with a, a company based in Geneva? I don't really know. I mean, what does that entail? Well, essentially, we're trying to source older wines. Okay. You know, we're essentially competing with the auction houses. I see. You know, trying to find sellers ahead of time and then to sell them commercially rather than auction them off. And so it was a good time because a lot of sellers, particularly European sellers, were coming online because prices were moving up briskly, you know, particularly driven by the auction markets. And, you know, there was a big thirst in the U.S. And so we, I had one cohort that ran the western half of the U.S. and I ran the eastern half. And, you know, we'd have people sourcing wines at great old sellers throughout the continent of Europe and shipping them into the U.S. So it was fantastic, you know, so... I had an opportunity to taste wines that I'd only dreamed of previously or would had once or twice in my life, you know, things like Henri Jaillet or, you know, Costerie. I drank so much Costerie that I got to the point where I said, not another bottle of Mirso Perrier. Right. Don't, yeah, don't exactly. we have a vintage we haven't had this week? You know, <laughs> it was, I was very spoiled, but it was a lot of fun. Because so what was happening was a strong wine market in the United States, uh, kind of an economic decline in Europe, and people wanted to 
leverage the seller and turn that into dollars and you could offer them a big check as opposed to waiting for the auction to happen and see uh, hold hold their fingers crossed yeah we sort of removed the element of chance from you know people that wanted to sell their sellers and we bought the entire seller you know an auction house is happy to sell your own Rijaye Crow parent to but probably less interested in selling you know your 1971 70 Le Bon from Patrick Bees or something like that you know it's it's just not going to have the same sex appeal and so They'll take it all, but you're not going to get real money for that. And so we, you know, we had clients that were happy to have those kind of wines. And it was fun to sell wine that was mature. Yeah. So was part of it kind of educating the American audience about what mature wine is? I don't really think so. I mean, they at, knew by this already. point, there was a, you know, a huge coterie of collectors that were just you know, dying to be able to have access to these wines. So it was just a matter of finding the wines. You know, so for instance, we'd find Domaine Ramonet, you know, and somebody would have a cache of Domaine Ramonet that would have four or five years, six years bottle age on it. So Chateau and Estate, for instance, might be selling the, I don't know, 1996 vintage, you know, and you have a chance to find 1989 or 1990 Ramonets, you know, and it was, it was fantastic, you know. So restaurants were thrilled to have a chance to be able to put some older wines on alongside the younger ones. Because and collectors were thrilled to have a chance to buy wines like that as well. Because then you can serve it that night and actually have it be ready to go as opposed to some of these wines you're speaking of. They require 10 years, 12 years to really open up. Oh, it's true. And I mean, and you know this, having been a sommelier as well, is that, you know, that's the great conundrum of wine service in restaurants is you either put the wines in your cellar and wait until they're mature, which just kills the cash flow for the restaurant. And there's very few restaurants that can afford to do that. Or you put the wines on the list knowing they're too young, but knowing that that's what you have to do, and you'd rather have the world's greatest wines and serve them too young than not have them on the list at all. So, you know, it was an opportunity to sort of undo that Gordian knot a little bit. So you were finding things and then bringing them to a strong market, but it was also that kind of an economic moment that maybe passed because of the dollar situation at that time? Or Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the dollar was strong then. You know, I mean, it's essentially a third world currency now, to be honest. And so in that respect, you know, that moment has disappeared to a certain degree. Though I have to say, you know, knowing what I know now, I never would have anticipated that people would pay the prices they pay for the world's top wines. You know, where pricing has gone today is astonishing to me. And I would have been absolutely, I would have insisted there was no way people would pay the prices they pay six, seven hundred dollars for a bottle of Joseph Turin Mucini. Yeah, I mean, I remember that wine at $75 a bottle and it was difficult to sell. And that, you know, the 85 vintage was probably like $55 a bottle. And people were like, oh, it's kind of expensive for Joseph Drew and Mucin. I'm like, but taste the wine. It's great. You know, and now you see it at six, $700. It's extraordinary. And I never anticipated the prices would be able to sustain, be able to be sustained at that level for so long. It was it kind of like the art market and that every few years people would be like, this is outrageous, these prices. And yet they just kept going up every few more years. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I started in the wine business back in 1985, you know, people, I'd have collectors come in and say, God, nobody's going to pay $50, $60 for a bottle of Chateau Leoville Lascasse. You know, it's preposterous. You know, I bought Leoville Lascasse for $14 a bottle and it was the great 66 vintage. You know, how can people pay this price for it? Yeah, so I think you see that. I think that's one of the things you see typically in the wine business is with each generation, the younger generation comes along and they're willing to pay a higher price for the greatest wines. Because they don't have that same memory of paying the lesser price exactly. that their forebearers do. And as those forebearers drink down their cellars of wines that they've already bought because they leave the market, the younger people start to actually purchase wine because they're getting old enough to do that. Exactly. And, you know, I think, you know, I think you really have people that say, well, I'd love to buy 82 Lascasse, but it's $40, you know, and the 66 cost me $14. Yeah, you know, by the time like 95 or 96 comes out and it's $125, they're just like, I'm not buying that. 
But you have the younger generation that says, well, you know, I didn't, I've heard about 66 with glass, but I've never had it, but I'm sure 96 is going to be even better. And so I'm perfectly happy to pay that price. And so I think it's just sort of an inexorable march upward in price. And you sort of have a generation of people that, an older generation that just drinks off their cellar, or you have collectors that sort of say, well, all right, I'm being priced out of the Bordeaux market, you know, and so I'm going to go off in a different direction. And they start exploring wines like Chinon or Bourgogne or Summer Champagne from the Loire Valley, for instance. Or, you know, there was a huge migration at one point of people to California Cabernet after, you know, Bordeaux had sort of gone up in price for one of those, you know, price spikes with the 85 vintage of Bordeaux. People said, oh, it's going to be too high in price. You know, it seems astonishing now to think it was too high in price. But people migrated to California Cabernet because the best California Cabernets, people like Camus or BV Private Reserve in those days or, you know, Don or Foreman were just starting or Heights, you know, they were $17, $18. And, you know, Heights Martha's Vineyard was expensive at 26 or $27 a bottle. And so people sort of migrated to those wines rather than paying $50 or $60 for the new vintage of L'Evangile. So, so it was an interesting, you know, and I think that's a dynamic you see still to this day, people always moving around looking for the next great wine that is still underpriced in the world. And there's a lot of them out there. Because at the time, uh, you know, those represented value, even though now we think, well, California Cabernet, that's going to be expensive. At the time, it was half the price. And California Chardonnay was half the price of Burgundy, if not less. And yeah, even less, I would guess. People yeah. could. But then we also saw a moment there more recently where older vintages of Bordeaux were selling that were mature and from good vintages were selling for quite a bit less than release uh, you know, current vintage Bordeaux because the prices kept going up each year. Did that seem like a weird dichotomy? And is that I think it still exists too, to a certain degree. And I think you know what I think it's really the end product of Bordeaux becoming a luxury item, and at least it's my impression. You know, I visit Bordeaux now once or twice a year, every year, and have done it for the last three or four years, and it seems to me that there's a real push from the very top 20 or 25 or 30 chateau to become essentially investment vehicles now. And I think that's really what drives the price for people like Chateau Latour, Lafitte Rothschild. I mean, Lafitte is perhaps unique because it's still drunk as a trophy wine in Asia. But a lot of it, a lot of the other first growths and the super seconds, a lot of those are now investment vehicles. And you see a lot of wine funds that are, you know, latching up 500 cases or 300 cases of Pichon Lalonde and 400 cases of Ducru Caillou and putting them aside. And then they'll, you know, they'll sell them again on the market later. And they've really become, you know, trading pieces for the financial services industry rather than wines to drink, which is, I think, a tragedy. Is part of that that the French government obliges the insurance companies and other large companies in France to invest in agricultural resources and they see wine as something they can actually get a return on, whereas forests don't provide much of a return? Uh, that I'm not sure. You know, I really don't know much about the, you know, the French, French government's requirements in that respect. I think you see a lot of the insurance companies involved in places like Bordeaux and, you know, the big corpor luxury goods corporations. A, little, a lot of that has to do with the Napoleonic Code and, you know, the inheritance issues. Because people, um, as they have multiple children, it's divided between all the children and then it, the parcel becomes so small that they end up selling the parcel because it's not feasible for them to make wine from that small amount of, of land. Right. That's, you know, that's part of it. And the other is, you know, as the vineyard land has gone up in value, the inheritance taxes are so high. Now that, you know, a, you know, Bordeaux's not perhaps not a great example of it because a lot of them are now, you know, organized in corporate style ownership, even if they're still family controlled. But you see it in Burgundy a lot where, you know, people 
anticipate, you know, smaller domains, the price of the vineyard land, the value of the land has gone up to a point where they say, all right, my father's going to die. I'm going to take over the domain. I'm going to keep going because he wants me to. And it's, you know, the proper thing to keep the family tradition alive. But I'm going to be paying my inheritance taxes with all the profits for the next 10 years, you know, and I won't be looking to actually make a profit beyond, you know, subsistence level farming until year 11. And this is somebody that may own, you know, the world's greatest vineyards in Chevry Chambertin or Chambon Musigny or something like that. You know, and they really have to plan, you know, for the inheritance issues. And you see the father giving one vineyard out a little bit ahead of time and, you know, trying to just stretch, you know, break up the inheritance tax issues a little bit, try and stretch them out a little, but it's very significant. So you were working as a fine wine broker and then uh, after three years or so, you started your own brokerage uh, mm-hmm. under your own flag. How did your palate change at that time? I mean, uh, did it, do you move towards a preference for those mature wines that you were opening up often? Or? Uh I was fortunate starting in the wine business, and maybe this is also you know, a function of wine being more affordable back when I started in the 1980s. But I was very fortunate that I met a lot of collectors that were older than me and very generous with their wine. So I drank mature wine from day one. And so when I started building a cellar, you know, I wasn't really tempted to open the wines I was buying my cellar. I was putting those down and you know, anticipating keeping them in the cellar 15, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, and I was happy to drink the older wines with them. And I would drink, you know, simpler wines that were made to be drunk younger at that time. You know, I would drink my Cru Beaujolais. I would drink, you know, things like Chateau Chasplin or Chateau Socian de Malais and things like that. I would drink the off vintages. I drank a ton of 1980 Bordeaux, you know, when I was starting because it was a lesser vintage. And that's what we used to do with lesser vintages in those days. You know, they didn't all disappear into the French supermarkets, but people would buy them. And you, those were the wines you drank while you were waiting for the great vintages to mature. And so I always love mature wine, and that's never stopped. You know, and so when I started my newsletter, I wanted to write fifty percent about older vintages, specifically because that's what I drank mostly. And that was kind of a departure from a lot of the newsletters at the time that were really focusing on what is about to get released from Bordeaux, for example, like on futures, the futures market, writing about you know things, barrel samples, and things that had just been bottled. But let's talk a little bit about how you got there. I mean, how did you start writing? Because you were doing the brokerage thing. How, how did yeah, that it transition? It really started with the guys in Geneva uh-huh. because we had a website, and they you know they were looking for some content to fill the website besides the price lists. Ah, and so they asked me, you know, would I be willing to write a little bit? I went, I hadn't really thought about it before. I thought. Yeah, that would be kind of fun. You know, I'd be perfectly willing to do that. So I started to write a little for them. And, you know, they said, it'll just add a little gravitas to our com- company because we're a new company, you know. And I thought, okay, sure. And so, you know, we'd go to Burgundy and we'd taste it. I'd just write up my tasting notes and my impression of the vintage. And, you know, so I just started writing. And then I just started getting emails from clients and people that were looking on the website saying, this is terrific wine writing. You know, if it was a newsletter, I'd buy it. And so I put that in my back of my mind, you know. And just kept, you know, plugging away, being a wine broker, enjoying my Henri Jaillet and my old, you know, Barolo Monfortinos from the top producers in, you know, around the world. And I just thought, you know, I'll keep writing. So when I started my own company, I said, well, we got to have something to put on the website besides the price lists. So again, I just kept writing and you know, I, the people kept sending notes saying, this is good wine writing. And so I just thought, you know, if I ever want to write about wine, you know, it's something I should think about. And so after a few years of doing my wine brokerage company, I thought, well, now's the time. If I'm going to do it, this is the time to do it. You know, the dollar was tanking again. And I thought, you know, it's it's just not going to be possible to buy wines and sell them at these prices. It's unsustainable. And so that's when I figured I might as well take the chance to start the newsletter. Did you have any models in mind when you when you started the newsletter up? Were there 
people you kind of drew from? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a product of Robert Parker's age, you know. Is that true? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was in college when he started The Wine Advocate, you know, and I was working in wine shops when he really got started. You know, that was my part-time job in college, but basically so I could buy the wine at cost, which was, you know, the chief goal because, you know, the only reason to work was to buy wine. I was so, you know, excited to discover new wines every day that, you know, a chance to buy it at a discount was key, you know, since I was putting myself through school. And so, you know, Robert Parker was just starting at that time in the wine shops I worked in. We always had a subscription to The Wine Advocate, and we waited for the new issue to come out. And I always had to wait, you know, four or five days for the owner to read it before I could get my hands on it. And then I would just devour it, and I would just keep rereading them and rereading them when I was, you know, sitting around at night after the it was quiet and there wasn't anything to do for a couple of hours before we closed. You know, I just constantly kept rereading them, and, you know, I'd read about wines I'd never had before, you know, things like Hermitage La Chapelle, 1961, and I'd read his tasting note and go wow, I can't believe, you know, what it would be like to taste wines like that all the time, you know? And so, you know, when I started, I just thought, you know, I'd like to write a newsletter like Robert Parker's. And so that's sort of why it's a bi-monthly newsletter. And it just sort of evolved over time that when I decided to do the newsletter, I just felt it was a moment where somebody needed to write about wines in general that had a more traditional palate than Parker's had uh, evolved into, you know, his the direction of the of his palate had gone to champion wines that I really disliked. Yeah, I just couldn't find any merit in them whatsoever. You know, the high alcohol wines, the glossy fruit with lots of oak, and you know, it just offended me that those wines were constantly championed while people that were making terrific traditional wines were begging for customers. And you know, some of them were going out of business; they were selling their wine for peanuts, and you know, had vintages backed up in the cellar. And so, I just thought at the time I started the newsletter, you know. Somebody ought to do a wine newsletter like Robert Parker's, but to try and sort of recalibrate the market's palate back towards more traditionally styled wines. And I think a lot of the other publications had sort of followed Parker's lead because he was so popular. And so people that I respected that had, you know, really good traditional palates were all of a sudden giving high scores and really piling on the praise for wines that I thought were absolutely undrinkable. And so... You know, it, it just seemed like a good moment in time for that. You had Alan Meadows writing about Burgundy, sort of with that same sort of perspective, but he was only doing Burgundy. And I just thought, you know, somebody ought to do this for Bordeaux and California, the Loire Valley, Germany, and some of these other places, and just try and, you know, get a more traditional-oriented voice in the wine journalism world. You released it as a PDF, uh, you know, something online as opposed to printed, right? As, oh, yeah. Uh, printed. And did Meadows have an influence on you on that? Because, you know, Parker was always in print all those years and then eventually moved to online. But it seemed like Meadows was always big on online. Yeah. No, it was definite. I was one of Alan, Alan Meadows' uh, first subscribers. I think it was one of the first. Oh, is that true? 10 or 15, you know, because I was a huge Burgundy fan and I'd been introduced to him five or six years before and we'd done some events together and I knew him quite well. And so when he started his endeavor, I thought that's fantastic. I was happy to support it and really thought it was a great idea. And when I looked at, you know, the size of the newsletter he was putting out, I thought, this is fantastic. It's so in-depth. And there's just no way you could do that and do it in, as a print as a print journal. You know, it's just— Because it, you have to pay for mailing and yeah, paper exactly. and printing. You know, and... I, mean, my, I mean, I'm just writing up the 2011 Burgundy Vintage right now, and I'm at 150 pages. and I'm not even close to done, and I only spent three weeks in Burgundy. I mean— I covered a lot of ground while I was there, but there's just no way I could send out a 200-page newsletter, you know, once every two months and, you know, afford the mailing costs. It would just be so ridiculously expensive. And, you know, the electronic 
version is just perfect. You can get the details in. You don't you don't have to scrimp and say that this premier crew, you know, is made out of forty five year old vines, and you know they had to dig up half of it because of you know some sort of disease in the vines, and so now it's you know you've got some younger vines, and so the production's down. Those are the kinds of that's really useful information you can it's put details in. Details you want to know. Exactly. And you can do that if you're you know, working electronically. So I think it's terrific. I've never actually seen my newsletter printed out, except once I did. A, I was doing a speaking engagement. Somebody printed out an issue just so I'd have something to show people. And, you know, it was a stack of paper about, you know, eight, nine inches high. And I thought, God, that's a horrible waste of trees. That looks uh, like the federal budget over exactly. there. Exactly. You know? yeah, except yeah. there's a little resolution in mine. <laughs> But uh, so your newsletter does regularly clock in 100 and 120 pages. Oh, God, yeah. Those are the short ones these days. Yeah, I don't think I've done one under 100 pages ever. You know, it's. And how long have you been doing it now? When did you six start? and a half years. I started yeah. January of 2006. The first issue went out. So. Now it seems uh, like you have uh, quite the following. I mean, uh, people bring uh, your name up and the newsletter's name up quite often, especially in the rare and fine market with age. Uh, it comes up a lot. Uh, Burgundy, German, Barolo. Uh, was it easy at the beginning or was it a little more difficult? Or? No, it was very slow at the beginning. You know, Alan Meadows had told me that. He said, you know, he was very encouraging when I told him I was thinking of starting the newsletter. He says, it's a great idea. He says, but, you know, be prepared. The first couple of years will be real eye openers before you, you know, build up a little inertia behind it. And he was absolutely right. You know, I, I, it was astonishing, you know, how slow it was. I mean, I got, you know, the people that sent me emails Say, God, I would love to buy your newsletter if this, you know, if it was available as a newsletter back in my, you know, wine brokering days. Probably about twenty percent of those bought newsletters within, you know, the first couple of weeks, and the rest of the people I never heard from. Right, right. <laughs> when it was free, I loved it. Exactly, and I think that's one of the things we've got, you know, in this era of wine blogging is that you know people love advice, but they all want it to be free. They don't care if it's good advice or bad advice, as long as it's free advice, you know. And I think that's one of the things we really see with wine blogging these days. You seem to have surmounted that challenge, but did you see it as a difficulty to get through that? I mean, that idea that uh, gaining a reputation for being authoritative on a subject, uh, not mastering, as you said, because uh, you can never do that, but having some authority that people are willing to pay for, because it's not the cheapest thing in the world uh, to have a subscription. It's like a hundred and Yeah, some. it's $120 for six issues. So I always like to think of it as, you know, it's a, it's less than a bottle of Cru Beaujolais Certainly, per issue. Yeah. But, but you look at when people have to write the check for it or, you know give their credit card information, it's a lot of money, you know, because they don't think about it as, you know, six bottles of Cru Beaujolais. They think about it as like one bottle of Grand Cru Burgundy. And they say, yeah, I think I'd rather have a bottle of, you know, Corton Charlemagne from Bonneau de Martre. And I can't blame them. I would too. But you also think there's a market for people becoming more informed about these topics. Like there are people really seek, seeking out the knowledge and you feel like you can provide it. Yeah. It's one of the things I wanted to do with my newsletter is I often found when I was you know, doing research when I was writing for the rare wine brokering companies. And, you know, I'd be like, how long has Costa had, you know, the Berso Perrier parcel? And, you know, I couldn't find out the information. Right. You know, other than asking Monsieur Koch, and of course, if and for people that have tasted with Monsieur Koch, he's not really voluble, you know. Yeah. He's, he's a little reticent, so you, uh, you don't... It's hard to get information out of him. You know, he, you have, he has that look like, why do you want to know? Right. Are you he, trying to copy me somewhere? Exactly. You know, make uh, Corton Charlemagne your own? or Precisely. Kind of because uh, no website, often, with some of these producers. Fourth-hand information through the importer that's often wrong by the time it gets to the sales rep mm -hmm. that calls on you, you know, about the vine age or, you know, I mean, oftentimes I think like, do you ever 
add to the vine age? Like people be like, it's 20 year old vines. I'm like, what, when was it 20 year old vines? Was that 10 years ago? Was that two years ago? Was that today that's 20 years old? You know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I often find like, I go look at a book like Remington Norman's Great Domains of Burgundy and I go look and he'll have some information on vine age there. And so I look and I say, all right, now is this the first version or the second version? And I say, all right, well, this is republished in 96. And then, so, you know, I go and I add, you know, 17 years to whatever the vine age was there. Right, and then I wonder, but I wonder if they've grubbed it up since then, exactly, or if some of it's been diseased, or you know, was it an average at that point? You know, so it's infor- interesting information to have, and so I thought when I started the newsletter, you know, I really wanted to answer some of those questions I invariably had with a lot of the newsletters and books that I was reading previously, you know, because I didn't want, I wanted to really get below the surface. You know, I think it's something in our modern age that too often content, you know, especially, you know, when all of our information is coming through our phone, you know, to have, you know, a soundbite worth of information or, you know, a, a superficial knowledge of a lot of different subjects and to move on, you know, and I, it's just not the way I was built. You know, I, I really want to have better knowledge of less, you know, really try and build sort of, you know, an intellectual foundation for, you know, my knowledge of wine or for anybody's knowledge. And so that was one of the goals of the newsletter was to try and, you know, add some of those details. And, you know, people ask me questions now and I have to go back and look, you know, I write a domain profile on somebody like Louis Jadot, for instance, you know, by the time you finish with all the vineyards they have, all the different, you know, vineyard parcels that are owned by, you know, the Jadot family, the ones owned by the Gaji family, the ones that are, you know, in Metiage for a long time, all of a sudden you start, you know, coming up with the, uh, the details for this and the details for that. And the next thing you know, you've written 40 pages and then you got to put your tasting notes and then you've got this 60 page, you know, magnum opus or amorphous out of control article. And somebody says, you know, well, in Bone Clodes or Sewell, you know, how old are the vines? I have to go back and look. I can't remember, you know, because there's so much detail to master. But it's nice to have that, you but know, But at reference. least you can look now as opposed to just wondering, you know, exactly. like, oh, I don't know, you know, at least you can go back and look. Because oftentimes when I read you, I feel like, oh, that's the question I should have asked when I met that guy, or that's the question I should have asked when I was in that cellar, and I didn't ask that one. I asked some other things, but I didn't, you seem to really remember to ask all the questions and then put that down on the page. And sometimes that's quite important, like, why is this wine always better than that wine that the guy makes? Oh, it's because those vines are 30 years older in that parcel than that one. And every year that's evident. That's right. It's or not like, evident on or the label. Or like when his father was replanting the vines, you know, there were two different rootstocks to choose. And so he chose one rootstock, you know, for this vineyard and another rootstock for the other one, just so they could, you know, minimize his risk at that time. And then it turns out one rootstock was fabulous and the other one, it wasn't very special. And have you found that as... Grand Cru Burgundy does cost a thousand or more dollars now. Sometimes that people are more willing to search out those small details before they make that big wine purchase. Yeah, I think that's true. But I think also that people have always been, uh, you know, interested in those issues. Particularly, you have people that are, you know, collecting, you know, the world's greatest wines. You know, and it doesn't have to be expensive wine. You know, it, you know, it could be a Spätlese from Hanno Zillikin, for instance. People still want to know, you know, about the Sarburger Rausch, what the soil is like, or something like that. Yeah, so I don't think it's really price sensitive, but as you get people that have collected wine for a while and drunk wine for a while, I think it's, you know, the intellectual element of wine drinking that's one of its most compelling aspects. You know, it's not, I don't get the same, I mean, maybe it exists, but I don't find the same, you know, trying to master the different tequilas that are out there and things like that. So, you know, I think it's more than a libation. It's, you know, it's the cultural and sort of artistic side of wine and the history of it that's also very interesting. And for a lot of people, the more they're in the wine business and or you know involved in the world of wine, that becomes one of the most important and compelling aspects of it. 
you actually come to a point where you're like, God, I wish there was no alcohol in this because I feel like opening another bottle, you know, at the end of the meal, but I don't want to have another bottle of wine in my system tomorrow because I got to function, you know? So I think a lot of it is that historical aspect. When I read your writing style, it seems like uh, often there's uh, something that comes up, which is kind of, this is counter to what you normally hear. Like, I'm going to tell you I prefer 89 to 90. And that's not normally what you hear, but I'm going to say it, and I'm going to say it with gusto, and I'm going to back that up with examples. Or I'm going to say, I think, uh, you know, Keller's great dry Riesling, and this one's a little overrated that's in comparison, that kind of thing. Do you often feel that you have gone kind of against the normal thinking in in the wine community? I just think my palate is uh, more reflective of a, a more traditional and, you know, Freddie Mounier, winemaker in Chambon-Musigny, who's a subscriber, which is very That's sweet. That's really cool. I have to thank him for that, you know. But uh, he said at one point, you know, he wrote a nice little blurb, just a couple of quick sentences, you know, from my website, just, you know, talking about the newsletter a little. And he says, you know, what I really combine, what he's, in his view, he, you know, that I have a European palate and an American sense of uh, diligence, I guess is a nice way to phrase it. Which probably means I work too much by the European perspective. But you're there writing and taking it down and making the notes as opposed to uh, just drinking the wine and being like, hey, that's great. You know. Mm-hmm. Let me see. I mean, one of the things I think would be kind of difficult would be breaking new information when your topic is mature wine. But you seem to have gone about trying to do that by, say, focusing on grower champagne or writing articles on cava, areas that have produced wine for a long period of time. But you do seem to want to provide value by finding new things, even though you may often be talking about older wines in the bottle. Is that true? Yeah, it's well, it was one of the goals when I started the newsletter was to split the editorial content, you know, down the middle to have 50% reviews of new new vintages, new wines, and 50% older wines. And I probably have strayed more towards newer wines. It's probably more like a 60-40 break right now. But, you know, the goal was to try and cover, you know, again, using Robert Parker as the model, to try and cover most of the world of wine. You know, there's still places I should go visit that, you know, I don't have time to do. You know, it's crazy. I write about older Italian wines a lot, and I haven't written about the new vintages in Italy, and it's criminal. I mean, I have so much Barolo and Barbaresco in my cellar, and I drink so much Barbera and Dolcetto. And, you know, it's criminal that I don't get there and handicap the new vintages. And it's been on the to-do list for a couple of years, and I hope, hoping 2013 will find me starting to do that kind of coverage more often. One of the things I find really effective, and I'm not even sure if it is effective, but it seems so to me, is that you kind of tease the future uh, articles in the table of contents. You're like, here's this table of contents and this issue, and then here's what's going to come up in the next few issues. And you kind of keep people interested in what you're going to be saying in the future and kind of almost set the table for discussions in a way. Like, yeah, I'm really curious what that Berlotto, Barolo article is going to say, you know, because there's not a lot of conversation about it. Do you Have you, have you found that to be an effective kind of sales technique in terms yeah, of kind of teasing? The- I think so. It's also it's also there partially for me to remind me what I've tasted, too, mm-hmm. because, you know, you look at 150 pages or 120 pages in an issue and you say, God, that's a lot of space. And then you start, you know, filling in the tasting notes on what you taste over the course of a couple months. And you start realizing, my God, I can't fit everything in. You know, the issue I'm working on now with, you know, the 2011 Burgundy Vintage, it's, you know, it's going to be 200 pages just on the 2011 Burgundies. That's ridiculously long. You know, it's it's too long, probably. I, I would suspect most subscribers won't have time to finish it before the next issue comes out. Or maybe they'll just kind of hunt and peck 
what they're looking for, that kind of. Yeah, I think they jump around a little. Yeah, which makes sense. But it, you know, in that respect, I have to remember, you know, what I've tasted. I mean, I tasted some beautiful Berlotto wines, and I haven't had a chance to write about them. And it's four months ago I did the tasting. Yeah, so it's one of the reasons. It's just to remind myself what I've got still in the can, waiting to come. And uh, you know, you talked a little bit about the difficulty um, in the '80s and '90s for traditional producers trying to sell their wines and how much trouble they had in the market. And you talked about how you find that you have a very old world palate. Has the market shifted more towards that palate or is that not true? Uh, I think so. I mean, that's my perception. You know, I look at, you know, to use like, as an example, the region of California, you know, it really gratifies me to see a winery like Reese come along. You know, Reese Vineyards in the Santa Cruz Mountains is making just glorious Syrah and Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and making them in a very old school, traditional style. And I just think that's fantastic. And they've had, you know, dramatic success. And I think that's just reflective of a market that's been dying for those types of wines to come back on and arrive. You know, particularly something like California Syrah. You know, you go out to California and a lot of vineyards will say, we love the grape, but we can't sell it to save our life. You know, nobody's interested in it anymore. And I think what you see is that it's not true with somebody like Reese, who's making, you know, Syrah in the Santa Cruz Mountains at 12.5%, 13% alcohol tops. And I think what the reality is, is people aren't interested in the wine that's 15.5% alcohol, you know, all glossed up with vanilla and oak. You know, it's just an oversized, you know, caricature of Syrah. And I think those wines are really going to have a hard time selling. And even if you could push them through the market one or two or three vintages with a big score from somebody like Robert Parker, who loves that style of wine, what happens is people put them in their cellar. And after two or three years, they start tasting and going, I don't like this wine at all. One, because that type of high alcohol wine, it's very rare that those wines will age well. I mean, it's extraordinarily difficult to make a wine that high in alcohol and get it to age well. And most of them don't. And so I think people start pulling stuff out of their cellar and say, you know, I don't care what the score is on the new vintage because I bought the 92, I bought the 95 and they aged like crap, you know, and they're undrinkable now and they were expensive and nobody wants them. I don't have any idea what to do with them. I send them to auction. They don't generate any money, you know? And so I think to a certain degree, it's that type of style of wine, you know, doesn't breed follow-up sales if people put it in their op- put it in their cellars and they don't age well. Because they just don't agree with the drinking window predictions that were made when they bought them. Right, exactly. You know, they didn't drink them all up right away when the wines were really engineered to taste good and probably tasted pretty good. And they waited a few years thinking, oh, this is Syrah. I've got to wait for the tannins to fade a little bit. And when they did, the wines were completely out of balance and alcoholic and pruney and just very uninteresting. So you feel in a way that maybe people were looking for a more traditional voice right around the time that you were providing it uh, critically and that, you know, you were kind of the game in town for that that viewpoint? Yeah, I think to a certain degree that's true. I mean, you know, stylistic preferences come and go in the world of wine like in everything else. You know, and I think, you know, you could only go so far in the, you know, the supersized Big Mac style of winemaking. And, you know, it was just inevitable that, you know, people's preferences were going to start to swing back. I mean, some people's preferences never went that direction. I mean, I could never find anything, you know, remotely interesting to say. I mean, I think you've done a interview with uh, Josh Reynolds from the International Wine Center. We did, yeah. And Josh was so funny because when I first started my newsletter, we were doing a wine tasting at a Fred's house. It was a great big weekend, a big burgundy tasting, something we'd done annually for probably a decade at this point. And people always brought wines between whatever the theme burgundy tastings were to just sort of have while we were cooking dinner together and things like that. So Josh, of course, brought a couple bottles of Molly Duker with him, you know, which I had no idea what it was. But Josh couldn't write about him with, you know, 
the same sort of tongue-in-cheek approach that I might. And so he served them to me blind, knowing full well I would. that's not the kind of wine I would really like. And you know, he had a great great enjoyment when they found their way into my roadkill section in the first couple of issues. Maybe we should talk about roadkill. I mean, that generated a lot of buzz. I, I don't know if it was uh, favorable for you or not. I mean, what was that and what happened? Well, my idea with roadkill was just there were some wines that were you know getting extremely high scores everywhere else in the wine press that I just thought were completely undrinkable and they were very expensive. And I just thought it was important to have, you know, a dissenting opinion out there from somebody in the back bench. So, you know, I just thought, well, these guys can find their way into roadkill. And, you know, they had to be expensive wines to get there. You know, and one of the ironies is when I did the first one, I put a Syrah in there and it turns out it was made by Kevin Harvey from Reese Vineyards, who sent me a note and says, you know, we bought the fruit, and to be honest with you, I don't like the wine either. He says, it's, you're a little harsh on it, but I think I gave it like you know 72 points or 68 points or something. But he says, you know, we contracted for the fruit, and it arrived way riper than we hoped for, and you know, we just did the best we could. Because this was during an era where you almost stopped seeing 70-point scores in any publication because winemaking had changed more to maybe accommodate some of the critics or because I'd say wine criticism or... had changed a bit to accommodate winemaking. You know, that, you know, it's hard to keep getting fed if you bite the hand that feeds you. you because know? people won't provide you samples of precisely dissing and, their wine. Yeah, and wine's so expensive, there's no way any critic can survive without getting some free samples. So did you feel that harshness back at you when you kind of did some things in roadkill? Was it difficult uh, for you to then approach certain producers? Or? I don't know. I mean, I haven't approached some of the, you know, the real sacred cows, the people that, you know, everybody thought was great, but which I really didn't care for. People like Luciano Sandroni or, you know. A couple of the vintages of Vega Sicilia, you know, and I mean, a wine critic in Spain, a well-known journalist named Victor de la Serna, still, you know, he skewers me, shall we say, by, uh, you know, occasionally, you know, he'll reiterate, you know, that I didn't like a couple of vintages of Vega Sicilia Unico, you know, which were egregiously over-oaked, you know, I, I wasn't wrong. But one of the fun things was after I did the second version of Roadkill, and people were starting to get up in arms a little bit, I had a bunch of my subscribers out in Los Angeles do a roadkill tasting because oh, they really? thought because I thought I was I had completely lost it. There was just no way things like Hermitage La Chapelle or Vega Sicilia Unico, or which they'd heard from Sandroni Barolos, were, really were going to be undrinkable, right. and they'd all bought them, you know, because they had huge scores in er virtually every place else in the wine press. And you know, they sent me this really nice note after they did the tasting, saying, "You know, you were spot on." with every wine. We went in completely skeptical. I thought you'd just completely lost it or it had unrepresentative samples. And we walked out saying, thank God, you know, that somebody had the temerity to write about these, you know, because we can flip them at auction, get our money out of these wines that are, you know, tragically flawed and, you know, hopelessly out of balance. They're not, that aren't going to age. And so they were all able to sell their wines, you know, and they, I felt completely vindicated after that. At the same time, I thought, you know, perhaps I was a little too, uh, I don't know, a bit too honest in uh, handicapping some of those wines. There was no reason to really be, you know, quite as snippy as I was. You know, it was fun to write those articles. You know, to write tongue-in-cheek is something you don't get to do too often in the wine business. So that was fun. Is it important for a wine critic to keep one eye on the market and the realities of that as they're evaluating wines? I mean, is it important to level with uh, collectors and say, like, hey, maybe you should sell these now. I just don't believe in these wines. Is that something that's something a valuable service i think so i mean i think it's you know it was one of the goals with writing some of the older the notes on some of the older vintages was just you know just to check in and you know see how things were doing and you know whether or not 
the early prognostications were still spot on, or if perhaps things had changed. I mean, a perfect example is the 1990 vintage in red burgundy. You know, it's a vintage that I thought was the best vintage to come along since 1959 when the wines were first released. I mean, they were glorious. They had everything I loved about a, a vintage like 1985, but more of it. And I thought the wines were fabulous. And five, six, seven years later, they were starting to get pruney, raisiny, I mean, decidedly overripe and really uninteresting. You know, and I had bought, I basically mortgaged my cellar to buy as much 90 red burgundy as I could. You know, I was a wine merchant in those days, and you couldn't afford to buy cases of Grand Cru Burgundy on a you know, retail general manager's salary unless you came up with some other strategy. So I sold a lot of my Bordeaux and California wines I'd put in my cellar to put 90 red burgundies in my cellar, and I ended up with 40 cases of you know, blue chip red burgundies. I was really thrilled to have those. I thought, ah, now I've got a real cornerstone for you know, my wine drinking pleasure in my old age. And then the wine started to change, you know, and it was something that you know, still today you don't see people saying, you know, 90 red burgundy is lousy vintage, but in fact it is. It's overripe and the wines have aged poorly. And I think it's important to go back and revisit them and see. You know, conversely, we've got a vintage like 2004 for red burgundy where I've got not subscribers per se, but non-subscribers that like to banter about me a little bit on the internet but uh, they're you know, questioning my burgundy palette because I'm still fond of the 2004 red burgundy vintage. And you know, I've said all along, these wines you know, are going to turn into something interesting if you wait long enough. You know, the sort of peppery green aspects that we find in 2004 red burgundies were prevalent in the 1991 red burgundies when they were released. You know, and because, I didn't know that. Oh, they were, they were so green, so many of them. I mean, great wines. Henri Chaillet's Cro Parentu was green. You know, it had this really peppery element to it when it was young. The Cro Parentu from Emmanuel Rouget was the same. There are a lot of these wines. And for my inexperienced palate at that time, or relatively inexperienced, you know, coming off the plush wines of 89 and 90, I was like, God, these wines are overrated. There's no way these are going to age. Yeah. And I was completely wrong. The wines morphed into just glorious wines. And so, you know, it was a real learning experience. And so I thought, you know, wines that start out a little bit green in life, often those elements turn into savory elements when the wines are mature 15 or 20 or 25 years down the road and really intriguing elements that add to the complexity of the wine. And so I think it's important not to run away from those flavors and aromatics when the wines are young. You know, particularly for, I mean, Pinot Noir is not necessarily an important uh, grape in that respect, but Cabernet Sauvignon or Cabernet Franc, for instance, those elements are, you know, inherently part of the structure of, you know, Cabernet when it's young and it's perfectly normal. And those are things that are, make the wine interesting and complex when it's old. So I don't think winemakers, you know, that try and steer away from those flavors, you know, or wine critics that find them flaws when they're young are necessarily spot on. You know, I think it's something that you should have to recognize. Well, I mean, there, speaking of Pinot, there, there was that kind of, I feel like Aubert Duvalet has said that uh, green flavors can turn into perfume flavors with bottle age. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you see it, look at a domain like Domaine du Jacques or Domaine de la Romanicanti because they retain their stems, which is, you know, becoming a more and more popular aspect of fermentation. You know, people want to do whole cluster fermentation now. But those wine, it gives green elements to the wine when they're young. You know, the Joseph Duran wines are the same way. And you'll have those green elements, you know, it's sort of that pepperiness or, you know, slightly herbal quality from the stems. And that gets very, it turns really into an element of cinnamon with time, you know, which is something I happen to adore in red wine, you know, when it's older. So I have no problem with that at all. We talked a little bit about how the Burgundy market changed in America, um, but something you write about often is the Piemonte uh, producers and their wines. How do you think the Barolo market has changed and will change in, in America? I think, well, 
I'm not so much. I think it's more of a global market rather than an American market. But I think you really see that you're in the process of seeing it now. But it's the traditional style of wines in Brollo and Barbaresco are being championed again. And I think that that's, they're going to continue to be in the ascendancy. And you're going to see the producers that make the more modern style of Barolo and Barbaresco, you know, change back to traditional styles. I think it's already starting. You know, somebody like Paolo Scavino, those wines were as oaky and as modern as they could be in the late 80s and all through the decade of the 1990s. And they're now moving to a much more traditional style. And I, I just think what's happened is, you know, they've learned from their mistakes. They've tasted these wines and realized that they're not aging well, or they ha- didn't age as well as the wines of our fathers and our grandfathers, you know, speaking from the perspective of the Piemontese winemakers. And they're going back to more traditional styles. And I think you'll just see that continue to happen. Certainly, most of the new generation of producers you see coming along, they're making traditional style wines there now. Somebody that occurs to me that uh, champions a lot of the same producers and styles that you do in the import and retail sector is Manny Burke of Rare Wine Company. Um, Are you guys friendly? Uh, Because I feel like I've seen you at a couple of Rare Wine Company dinners. Yeah, I've known Manny now for a long time. It goes back to my early days in the retail industry here in New York when I came down to work. Manny did some advertising for some of the people I worked for. And so, you know, we'd see him, you know, every couple of months to do big advertising pushes. And when he started the Rare Wine Company, I think he was, you know, very prescient in sort of identifying certain areas to specialize in that were really underrespected at the time. I mean, you know, that his love for Piemontese wines, you know, dates back to that time. You know, one, he'd always loved the wines, but two, nobody at that time was really championing them. You really have to go back to Lee Iacucci and Gold Star. And once Lee passed away, you know, it, there wasn't really anybody to do that. And so I think Manny did a great job of championing those wines. You know, he's doing it with Rioja today, you know, going for the traditional old school Riojas and hunting out old cellars, such as he, as he did with Bar- old Barolos and Barbarescos 10 and 15 years ago. And let me ask you, what do you think about the Chinese wild card of the Singapore-Hong Kong market? How is that affecting uh, global consumption? I don't know exactly. You know, I haven't been to Asia. I've been invited a few times, but I haven't been able to squeeze it into my travel schedule. So I'm not really up on what's going on there. You know, I think there's, to a certain degree, sort of the, if we could call it the Lafitte phenomenon, is, uh, you know, I think you feel it very strongly in Bordeaux when you're visiting in Bordeaux. That a lot of people would, lo- you know, other top growth chateaus would love to emulate Lafitte's presence in China. And I, I don't know if, you know, if it's slipping or not. My perception is that, you know, the infatuation with Lafitte is starting to cool a little in China. But I haven't been there and I may be completely off base with that. But well, you see that a lot with the, the top Bordelais chateau. I mean, you know, Chateau Latour and Chateau Aubryon. And people are trying to really, you know, get the same sort of market niche that Lafitte has in China because it's been fabulous for their pricing. Well, let's talk about what you do do often. Uh, when you talk to a grower or a producer, what is important to you to ask? Because it does seem like the, the newsletters are so thorough. You clearly have asked a lot about history. You've read up on producers and sometimes obscure books to find out pieces of history. I remember Giacomo Quintero's profile. There was a, a reference to a, a fairly obscure Italian book that seemed to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do, how do you go about uh, talking to producers and what's important to establish when you do? Well, I always try and, you know, just try and ask my questions from the perspective of the winemaker, you know, what they would ask, what would be important for them. You know, so you want to know how the growing season was for them, how, you know, how particular parcels are doing, whether the growing season favors white wine over red, whether the cooler vineyards might have done better in this vintage rather than another, you know, 
always I'm asking about oak, you know, because I'm just not a big fan of oak, you know. Jeremy says of Domaine Dujac is always sweet. He says, you know, you only give us good scores so that you have some cover because we use a lot of oak and you need somebody that you can say you like the wines. And so I think that's always kind of funny that, you know, he, he says, I don't really like his wines. I'm just using him as an excuse, you know. But uh, I always ask he's about... the token ochre. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, I always ask about oak, you know, and just so, sort of the... It's nice to know their philosophy because, you know, with most wine, you've got... Particularly the wines I really like are wines that sort of speak of their soil. You know, it, a lot of the places you go, the grapes have been in that, those soils for a thousand years or more. You know, the monks figured it out back, you know, 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 AD, you know, so it's a long time ago. And so you've had that match already been selected, and yet some people make better wine than others. So, you know, it's nice to know what their philosophy is and of the people whose wines you really like and really respect. And what you inevitably find in the world of wine, I think, is that the people whose wines you really like, you end up really liking the people too. Yeah, I can't think of too many people where I go, ah, you know, his wines are spectacular, but man, what a loser. I would not want to break bread with this guy. It's usually just the opposite. You walk out of the cellar, you're like, you know, I'd really like to come back and just spend some time with these people. You know, you talk to Jean-Marie Fourier and Jeffrey Chambertin. Super nice. Great guy. And so intellectual and philosophical about what he does. And you're like, I really would like to spend some time talking to him. You know, you always regret when the visit's over. You know, and sometimes you regret like, oh no, now we got to taste the Grand Cruz and you got to sit there and take tasting notes. You can't listen to him talk and philosophize anymore. You know, you got to concentrate on the wines. And so I think it's inevitably, you know, it's one of the things I think is so beautiful about wine is, you know, it's sort of like a great painting or a great piece of music. It's an expression of the person. You know, and when the grape and the soil are perfectly wedded to each other and all you have is sort of the interpretation of that through the winemaking of the certain individual. I mean, that's really special. And it's something that lasts, you know. In our lives, I think we look for things to do that, you know, are going to last and, you know, have some meaning, you know, beyond, you know, the immediacy of the next paycheck. And I think in the world of wine, you see that all the time. That, you know, and people are making wines that, you know, often you meet a vigneron and, you know, he's 65 years old and he's making a wine that's going to have to be selling 30 years before it can really drink. And the fact that he would never make the wine differently so that he could drink it in his lifetime, because that would be the wrong thing to do. I think that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, it's something transcendent that we should aspire to in, all, in other aspects of life beyond the world of wine. So we talked a little bit about how you approach producers, but I'd be curious how you approach a glass of wine. And you brought uh, a nice wine, and I, I wonder if you could just kind of take us through it as if you sure. were writing a tasting note, but, but speak those, those terms and what is important to you as you evaluate a glass of wine. Okay, well, the wine we've got is a 2002 Vouvray Demi-Sec from the vineyard of L'Olieur, from the producer of Domaine Huet. And uh, the first thing I look at is uh, it being now 10 years old, I worry about premature oxidation. Sure. Of course, because it's coming from my cellar. And the color's a little dark, but the wine seems perfectly fresh, so that's perfectly fine. So the first thing I always try and do is sort of identify the elements on the nose. You know, the color I don't worry too much about in terms of the quality of the wine, just sort of to tell me about the evolution of the wine. You know, so I look at some of the elements in the nose, and first thing I always look for is fruit tones. You know, just try and identify those first. So this is starting to transition a little bit. You know, it's got typical of Young Shannon Blanc. It's got sort of like a quince type of element. I always think of, you know, it's not quite as sweet as apple or pear. It's got a little more tartness to it. And that's sort of typically what I would call quince. And so that's there. But it, it's starting to get at the 10-year age point to uh, transition into a little bit of a more of a citric element. It's going to move towards, you know, that orange and tangerine type quality. And I see that starting to show. 
And it's got a little bit of honey because it's a demi-sec. It's got some sweetness. And then I sort of look at the soil flavors here. And, you know, it's got the typical sort of chalkiness of the old year vineyard here, which is, you know, it's got a lot of clay in the soil. And yet I always smell chalk. I don't know why. It's probably my limitations as a taster. But it smells chalky to me. So, you know, I sort of look at that and it's got that nice sort of floral aspect. And, you know, the flowers are starting to dry out a little bit, maybe not as, you know, fresh and vibrant as they were when the wine was young. And so then I taste it here. And what I look for on the palate is, you know, sense of balance. You know, what I see here is it's got nice acidity to it, you know, good mid-palate concentration. You know, I always like to have the elements in balance. You know, so to have the concentration in the mid-palate to go along with the good acidity on the finish is a very nice combination. You know, it's a little glossy from the little bit of residual sugar it still has. But I think it's starting to dry out a little at age 10, and it will eventually become a dry wine. And then I sort of try and sum up its balance on the palate. You know, it's got good structure, nothing sticks out, and it's very long in the finish. Yeah, so I think it's showing very well. And I would just add it's delicious. Thanks for bringing it. (laughs) No, it's my pleasure. I'm just curious because, you know, I feel like everyone – approaches the tasting a little differently and I, I i just like to hear what that's like yeah i tend to be pretty systematic about it you know just to try and cover all the bases at once you know though i've never been somebody that says all right i'm going to give 14 points for this and 16 points for that you know and if it's got ripe tannins it gets 10 points and if the tannins are a little harsh it only gets eight points and things like that you know it's it's more of a feel thing in terms of the scores basically from reading other people's scores and saying oh well, if 61 Hermitage La Chapelle from Paul Jabelet is perfect, which I agree with completely, it becomes a good benchmark. And they say, all right, so what is, you know, 1990 Hermitage La Chapelle in comparison to 1961? You know, so it becomes more of a feel thing, I think, you know, rather than a specific, uh, you know, it's not a precise science by any stretch of the imagination. I remember getting in a dispute with uh, Steve Tanzer and Alan Meadows, one tasting we were all at together, because I said, John, you taste too subjectively. You know, you've got to be objective about this. And, you know, Steve is, was great at this. I used to taste with him a lot when I lived in Manhattan because we lived just a couple blocks from each other. And he'd always be like, John, there's nothing wrong with this wine. It's balanced. You know, it's been beautifully made. You know, the wood is in balance. It doesn't stick out. It doesn't dominate the wine. You know, and I'd say, Steve, but it doesn't taste like Chevry Chambertin Clos Saint-Jacques. You know, it tastes like Pinot Noir with new oak and something's been lost here, you know. And so even if it's well-made, objective terms. Yeah, I don't like it. And so I have to score it lower. And he's like, you're crazy. Nobody will ever buy a newsletter based on subjective wine scoring. And maybe he's right, but at least I've got a few thousand people that will. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the that, because I feel like maybe the idea of the connoisseur is changing in an era where people are going back to the land, uh, do-it-yourself culture. People are growing their own vegetables or making their own pickles. There seems to be less of that little bit of a remove that I remember when I first started my career that I associate with the wine critic where he was less associated with producers, more uh, analyzing wines from afar. Um, Where do you see yourself on that spectrum and what's important to you uh, as someone who evaluates wine regularly to remember? uh, Where do you set your priorities? Uh, Well, I would say that I'm probably at least in terms of mentality, closer to the winemakers than to, you know, removed, you know, I probably would have loved to have been a winemaker. I Is don't that know. true? Yeah, I think so. I think it's something I would have really loved. I mean, there was a point in my career, you know, when I was first starting in college where I thought, you know, maybe I just want to be a farmer, you know, love to be outdoors and didn't mind the hard work at that point. Probably today I'd be like, are you kidding? It's way too much work. 
you know, but uh, I think I would have liked to have been a winemaker. And so I guess I'm more sympathetic to their needs and the challenges they face each year. I mean, it's pretty dramatic. And, you know, it's one of the things I try and respect a little bit when I taste samples is to understand that a human being on the other end of this bottle has spent a year of their life, you know, babysitting and, you know, bringing forth this wine. Sometimes it's more than a year, but, you know, it's for, at least in terms of the calendar year with the vintage, you know, it's one year that they've spent of their, you know, precious time on earth here, you know, trying to do something special. And so I try and be respectful of that. It's one of the reasons I stopped writing the roadkill articles. You know, they were a lot of fun and by far the most popular articles I wrote for my subscribers. But I thought, you know, it's just not respectful of the folks that made the wines. You know, even if they've made what I would say are, you know, catastrophic errors in terms of style or preference. You know, I mean, the perfect example is Vega Cecilia Unico. You know, and one of the things that I found acceptable in sort of putting them into that category was they'd had problems in their wine cellar with TCA contamination. And that's the reason the vintages I didn't like were over-oaked is, you know, they had problems with the old oak fooders, the wines were oh, so Unico. Wood. So they had to change the wood in Got the it. middle of the Elevage, you know, which I understand completely. They could have bought old wood, you know, or they could have seasoned other wines in there before putting the Unico in there. But, you know, I think they were, you know, in real fear of the TCA contamination getting into, you know, several vintages of Unico. And so they had to swap out the wood quickly, but they should have been honest about it, you know, and said, you know, this is what we had to do. We had TCA contamination in the cellars. We had to do something, you know, we, the wine had to go in oak. We didn't have old barrels available. There's problems with, you know, potential contamination from using older barrels. You could have bacterial logical problems with those barrels. It could be you know, just as bad as TCA and probably new oak is the least egregious change for the wine that didn't want to be changed in the first place. You know, the wine was happy doing its 10 years elevage in the old fooders and was probably, you know, it was a complete shock for the wine, I'm sure. But, you know, if they'd come out and said, we just had to do something and that's why these wines are a little oaky, I probably would have been, you know, that's perfectly fine. You know, they won't be great vintages of Vega Sicilia, but it's understandable they had to do that. But they didn't do that. You know, they, did, they didn't say anything. You know, and the wines came out and none of the critics said, hey, wait a minute. There's an awful lot of uncovered dry wood tin in these wines that's probably never going to age out of the wines. You know, instead they just, you know, knelt down again. You know, sort of reminds me of the Wizard of Oz a little bit, you know, when they go to see the wizard the first time and they pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know, and everybody's in fear of the great Oz. You know, I, I just had that perception as I was tasting these egregiously oaked vintages of Vega Sicilia. And, you know, one of the reasons I put those in. So you know, again, trying to just say, if I was in that position, what, what what would I have done? And I would have said, you know, we had a TCA problem. We dealt with it the best we could. We're sorry. And I'm sure the lawyers would have uh, shut me up and not allowed me to do that if I owned Vegas Cecilia. But has it become important for a critic, or at least has it become feasible and commercially for a critic to have a stated point of view about what they like, or maybe as Tanzer was referring to, be a little subjective, to champion? Because I feel like a lot of times when I read you're uh, writing about the states that you like. It's very positive all the way through in a way that feels like you're championing them and what they're doing. Um, and maybe not as as you did at one point, like Roadkill, like actively criticize what you don't like, but to have a point of view. Does that work in the market? Do people are attracted to that? Do they sense that now that this person has stated what they like, if I like that too, I can follow them? I like to think so. I mean, I think the sort of objective point of view or the objective veneer of wine criticism or wine journalism, I, I think it's just a non-starter. I just think it's something that is not possible for a human being to do, that 
you can't be objective about something like wine, just like you can't be objective about film criticism or music criticism. And I think the it's, as you said, just to get an established point of view, and then people can decide whether or not they think your point of view is relevant or, you know, completely potty and completely waste of time. And so I think it's, it makes sense to try and do that. And, you know, to be, you know, right up front that about your subjectivity, about your likes and your dislikes, because there's plenty of people out there that, you know, I were scratching their head the same time I was thinking about writing the newsletter going, how on earth can Molly Duker be a high scoring wine? You know, I, I don't mean to pick on Molly Duker. I'm sure they make some good wines. I just haven't tasted them, but I haven't tasted a lot of their wines, you know, so I don't want to pick on them, but at the same time, I think it just makes sense. And so I don't think I was the only one, you know, and I think there are a lot of people that were really happy to have me start to write about, you know, wines, more traditional wines and write more about the Loire Valley, you know, which got almost no coverage or like Beaujolais is perfectly, a good, a perfectly good example. When I went down to taste the 2005 vintage of Beaujolais, you know, so many growers said, we haven't seen a wine critic in 10 years you know, other than a French wine critic, this is fantastic. You know, and they were so open and sweet, you know, and it was nice to find there were lots of wines at some of my favorite domains that were terrific wines that the importers in the U.S. didn't c- carry because they didn't like the concept, you know, for instance, of a Cru Beaujolais aged in Burgundy barrels, you know. I mean, when I think about great importers of Beaujolais, I think of, you know, Joe Dresner, who's just passed away, and Kermit Lynch, and both those guys were just adamant, do not put my Beaujolais in Burgundy barrels. You know, it's got to be in the old fooders, as neutral as possible, or old cement tanks, you know, but please keep the Burgundy barrels away. And it was fun to go to these domains and say, I like the Cuvée Zachary at Chateau Tivan. You know, this is really good wine. It's different because it's got a little bit of wood to it. But it's compelling and beautifully made wine, and I think it's going to age beautifully as well. And it was kind of fun to discover those wines, and even more to meet these people that were just thrilled to have a wine critic show up and to go each year. Well, I don't go every year, but you know, every other year I manage to find my way down there. How yeah. often do you feel like the picture in the cellar is uh, 100% and maybe we get 70% of it in this country? I mean, how often does that sensation come up where you feel like there's a constructed viewpoint that's been created through the lens of the importer? Uh, I think that's... It's, it really depends on the importer. I mean, I think some importers are very happy to just let the wine speak for themselves, and they're happy to have them. I, mean, I think of a guy, great guy like Maurice Lardigo, who just passed away, who was you know instrumental in shit crafting the Burgundy portfolio at Chateau and Estate. Sure. And for him, you know, the wines did the talking, you know, because there's a lot of different kinds of Riveté. Burgundy associated with that book. Yeah, when it was you know big time. Yeah. It's absolutely true. And, you know, so you had an importer like that that, you know, didn't want to really shape the perception of the marketplace of the growers. And then you have importers like Kermit Lynch or Terry Thies, which are, you know, diametrically opposed in terms of, you know, publicity and, you know, introducing their domains and really shaping the perception, helping to sort of market the domains in the U.S. And, I, you know, they're much more proactive in that respect. And so I think it really depends on which importer there is. You know, certainly somebody like Kermit Lynch has been, you know, instrumental and, you know, really setting up, you know, this perception of his growers and his style of wines. And I happen to love his palate and I love his growers. So I think that's terrific, but it's not always, I just, I just think there's more to the story than what we hear through the importer, you know, because the importer can't carry everything he likes in most cases. You know, a lot of the sellers, it just would be fiscal suicide to carry every good wine made in the cellar and you have to pick and choose. That's the nature of the economic beast of being the importer. And so it's always good to say, well, I picked the best 70% or 60% of whatever I brought, you know, and you don't really need to have, you know, the Louis Saint-Georges from such a producer because we've got all the great phone romanies here. Yeah. And so I understand that. Uh, So you've been around a lot of bottles. 
a lot of growers, a lot of sellers. Are there is there a particular story that stands out for you that you're really drawn to as a as a time uh, that was just a great drinking story? Oh, I mean, probably my favorite one was probably the second time I got to you know break bread with Henri Chaillet, you know, right before he died. I mean, that was a very special moment. I had always wanted to meet Henri Chaillet, had no idea how to do it. Was of course way too shy to go up and ring his doorbell and phone Romanet. But uh, I finally had spoken to both uh, Marie André and Marie Christine Munieray of Domaine Munieray Giborg in Fon Romani, and Veronique Juan, and, and all of them were like, oh, we know Henri very well. You'd like to meet him? And so Veronique Juan was wonderful. She says, all right, you're coming in March. We'll, we'll set aside an afternoon. We'll go visit with Henri. He'll have a great time. And so we went, and it was three or four Freds and myself, and we spent a wonderful afternoon with him. I mean, it was great. And I mean, I loved Henri Chaillet. He was such a sweet man, and you know, particularly at the end of his career, was so happy to share his knowledge. You know, and there was something very special about it. And he had prepared a blind tasting for us, which I thought was a lot of fun. You know, he had three bottles of his wine for us to taste, which was a real treat. And you know, we had to try and guess what they were, and it was a lot of fun. And so that was a really special moment. And from that afternoon, we probably spent two or three hours talking with him. And one of the things that struck me is, you know, just shaking his hand. And he had the largest hands I've ever seen. And they were so strong. And he had to be close to, you know, 75 years old at this point. And his hands were still so strong from all those years working in the vines. You know, and I just thought, you know, here's one of the secrets to Burgundy. You know, if you want to make great Burgundy, you're going to spend the time out in the vineyards. You're not going to be at symposiums in Milan, you know, or big Paulets in New York. You're going to be in your vines. You know, and I thought, this is, you know, clearly one of the secrets of his great wine was what a great viticulturist he was. John Gilman from A View to the Cellar, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Levy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.